Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Act 2, Scene 2 of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens. Act Two, Scene Two. Vendale makes mischief. When Vendale entered his office the next morning, the dull commercial routine at Cripple Corner met him with a new face. Marguerite had an interest in it now. The whole machinery which Wilding's death had set in motion to realise the value of the business, the balancing of ledgers, the estimating of debts, the taking of stock and the rest of it, was now transformed into machinery which indicated the chances for and against a speedy marriage. After looking over results as presented by his accountant, and checking additions and subtractions as rendered by the clerks, Vendale turned his attention to the stock-taking department next, and sent a message to the sellers desiring to see the report. The cellarman's appearance, the moment he put his head in at the door of his master's private room, suggested that something very extraordinary must have happened that morning. There was an approach to alacrity in Joey Ladle's movements. There was something which actually simulated cheerfulness in Joey Ladle's face. "'What's the matter?' asked Vendale. "'Anything wrong?' "'I should wish to mention one thing,' answered Joey. "'Young Mr. Vendale, I have never set myself up for a profit. Who ever said you did?' "'No profit, as far as I've heard tell of that profession.' proceeded Joey, ever lived principally underground. No profit, whatever else he might take in at the pores, ever took in wine from morning to night for a number of years together. When I said to young Master Wilding, respecting his changing the name of the firm, that one of these days he might find he'd change the luck of the firm, did I put myself forward as a profit? No, I didn't. Has what I said to him come true? Yes, it has. In the time of Pebbleston Nephew, young Mr. Vendale, no such thing was ever known as a mistake made in a consignment delivered at these doors. There's a mistake being made now. Please to remark that it happened before Miss Margaret came here, for which reason it don't go against what I've said respecting Miss Margaret singing round the luck. Read that, sir, concluded Joey, pointing attention to a special passage in the report, 
with a forefinger which appeared to be in process of taking in through the pores nothing more remarkable than dirt. "'It's foreign to my nature to crow over the house I serve, but I feel a kind of solemn duty to ask you to read that.' Vendale read as follows. Note. Regarding the Swiss champagne, an irregularity has been discovered in the last consignment received from the firm of Defresnier and Co. Vendale stopped and referred to a memorandum book by his side. That was in Mr. Wilding's time, he said. The vintage was a particularly good one, and he took the whole of it. The Swiss champagne has done very well, hasn't it? "'I don't say it's done badly,' answered the cellarman. "'It may have got sick in our customers' bins, "'or it may have burst in our customers' hands. "'But I don't say it's done badly with us.' Vendale resumed the reading of the note. "'We find the number of the cases to be quite correct by the books, "'but six of them, which present a slight difference from the rest in the brand, have been opened, and have been found to contain a red wine instead of champagne. The similarity in the brands, we supposed, caused a mistake to be made in sending the consignment from Neuchâtel. The error has not been found to extend beyond six cases. "'Is that all?' exclaimed Vendale, tossing the note away from him. Joey Ladle's eyes followed the flying morsel of paper drearily. "'I'm glad to see you take it easy, sir,' he said. "'Whatever happens, it will be always a comfort to you "'to remember that you took it easy at first. "'Sometimes one mistake leads to another. "'A man drops a bit of orange peel on the pavement by mistake, "'and another man treads on it by mistake, "'and there's a job at the hospital and a party crippled for life. "'I'm glad you take it easy, sir. "'In Pembleson Nevy's time "'we shouldn't have taken it easy "'till we had seen the end of it. "'Without desiring to crow over the house, "'young Mr. Vendale, "'I wish you well through it.' "'No offence, sir,' said the cellarman, "'opening the door to get out "'and looking in again ominously before he shut it. "'I'm muddled and melancholy, I grant you.' "'but I'm an old servant of Pebbleson Nephew, "'and I wish you well through them six cases of red wine.' "'Left by himself, Vendale laughed and took up his pen. "'I may as well send a line to de Fresnier and Company,' he thought, "'before I forget.' "'He wrote at once in these terms. "'Dear Sirs, we are taking stock, and a trifling mistake has been discovered in the last consignment of champagne sent by your house to ours. Six of the cases contain red wine, which we hereby return to you. The matter can easily be set right, either by your sending us six cases of the champagne, if they can be produced, or, if not, by your crediting us with the value of six cases on the amount last paid, five hundred pounds, by our firm to yours. Your faithful servants, Wilding and Co. This letter dispatched to the post, the subject dropped at once out of Vendale's mind. He had other and far more interesting matters to think of. 
Later in the day he paid the visit to Obenreiser which had been agreed on between them. Certain evenings in the week were set apart which he was privileged to spend with Marguerite, always, however, in the presence of a third person. On this stipulation Obenreiser politely but positively insisted. The one concession he made was to give Vendale his choice of who the third person should be. Confiding in past experience, his choice fell unhesitatingly on the excellent woman who mended Obenreiser's stockings. On hearing of the responsibility entrusted to her, Madame Dour's intellectual nature burst suddenly into a new stage of development. She waited till Obenreiser's eye was off her, and then she looked at Vendale, and dimly winked. The time passed. The happy evenings with Marguerite came and went. It was the tenth morning since Vendale had written to the Swiss firm when the answer appeared on his desk with the other letters of the day. Dear sirs, we beg to offer our excuses for the little mistake which has happened. At the same time we regret to add that the statement of our error with which you have favoured us has led us to a very unexpected discovery. The affair is a most serious one for you and for us. The particulars are as follows. Having no more champagne of the vintage last sent to you, we made arrangements to credit your firm to the value of six cases as suggested by yourself. On taking this step, certain forms observed in our mode of doing business necessitated a reference to our banker's book as well as to our ledger. The result is a moral certainty that no such remittance as you mention can have reached our house, and a literal certainty that no such remittance has been paid to our account at the bank. It is needless at this stage of the proceedings to trouble you with details. The money has unquestionably been stolen in the course of its transit from you to us. Certain peculiarities which we observe, relating to the manner in which the fraud has been perpetrated, lead us to conclude that the thief may have calculated on being able to pay the missing sum to our bankers, before an inevitable discovery followed the annual striking of our balance. This would not have happened in the usual course for another three months. During that period, but for your letter, we might have remained perfectly unconscious of this robbery that has been committed. We mention this last circumstance, as it may help to show you that we have to do in this case with no ordinary thief. Thus far we have not even a suspicion of who that thief is, but we believe you will assist us in making some advance towards discovery by examining the receipt, forged of course, which has no doubt purported to come to you from our house. Be pleased to look and see whether it is a receipt entirely in manuscript, or whether it is a numbered and printed form which merely requires the filling in of the amount. The settlement of this apparently trivial question is, we assure you, a matter of vital importance. Anxiously awaiting your reply, we remain with high esteem and consideration, de Fresnia Essie. Vendale had the letter on his desk, and waited a moment to steady his mind under the shock that had fallen on it. At the time of all others when it was most important to him to increase the value of his business, that business was threatened with a loss of five hundred pounds. 
he thought of Marguerite as he took the key from his pocket and opened the iron chamber in the wall where the books and papers of the firm were kept. He was still in the chamber, searching for the forged receipt, when he was startled by a voice speaking close behind him. "'A thousand pardons,' said the voice. "'I am afraid I disturb you.' He turned and found himself face to face with Marguerite's guardian. "'I have called.' pursued Obenreizer, to know if I can be of any use. Business of my own takes me away for some days to Manchester and Liverpool. Can I combine any business of yours with it? I am entirely at your disposal, in the character of commercial traveller for the firm of Wilding and Co. "'Excuse me one moment,' said Vendale. "'I will speak with you directly.' He turned round again and continued his search among the papers. "'You come at a time when friendly offers are more than usually precious to me,' he resumed. "'I have had very bad news this morning from Neuchâtel.' "'Bad news?' exclaimed Obenreizer. "'From Defresnia and company?' "'Yes. A remittance we sent to them has been stolen. "'I am threatened with a loss of five hundred pounds. "'What's that?' Turning sharply and looking into the room for the second time, Vendale discovered his envelope-case overthrown on the floor, and Obenreizer on his knees picking up the contents. "'All my awkwardness,' said Obenreizer. "'This dreadful news of yours startled me. I stepped back.' He became too deeply interested in collecting the scattered envelopes to finish the sentence. "'Don't trouble yourself,' said Vendale. "'The clerk will pick the things up.' "'This dreadful news!' repeated Obenreizer, persisting in collecting the envelopes. "'This dreadful news!' "'If you will read the letter,' said Vendale, "'you will find I have exaggerated nothing. There it is, open on my desk.' He resumed his search, and in a moment more discovered the forged receipt. It was on the numbered and printed form described by the Swiss firm. Vendale made a memorandum of the number and the date. Having replaced the receipt and locked up the iron chamber, he had leisure to notice Obenreizer reading the letter in the recess of a window at the far end of the room. "'Come to the fire,' said Vendale. "'You look perished with the cold out there. I will ring for some more coals.' Obenreizer rose and came slowly back to the desk. "'Marguerite will be as sorry to hear this as I am,' he said kindly. "'What do you mean to do?' "'I am in the hands of Defresnia and Company,' answered Vendale. "'In my total ignorance of the circumstances, I can only do what they recommend. "'The receipt which I have just found turns out to be the numbered and printed form. "'They seem to attach some special importance to its discovery. "'You have had experience, when you were in the Swiss house, of their way of doing business. "'Can you guess what object they have in view?' Obenreizer offered a suggestion. "'Suppose I examine the receipt,' he said. "'Are you ill?' asked Vendale, startled by the change in his face, which now showed itself plainly for the first time. "'Pray go to the fire. You seem to be shivering. I hope you are not going to be ill.' "'Not I,' said Obenreizer. "'Perhaps I have caught cold. Your English climate might have spared an admirer of your English institutions.' "'Let me look at the receipt.' Vendale opened the iron chamber. 
Obenreiser took a chair and drew it close to the fire. He held both hands over the flames. "'Let me look at the receipt,' he repeated eagerly, as Vendale appeared with the paper in his hand. At the same moment a porter entered the room with a fresh supply of coals. Vendale told him to make a good fire. The man obeyed the order with a disastrous alacrity. As he stepped forward and raised the scuttle, his foot caught in a fold of the rug, and he discharged his entire cargo of coals into the grate. The result was an instant smothering of the flame and the production of a stream of yellow smoke without a visible morsel of fire to account for it. "'Imbecile!' whispered Obenreiser to himself, with a look at the man which the man remembered for many a long day afterwards. "'Will you come into the clerk's room?' asked Vendale. "'They have a stove there.' "'No, no, no matter.' Vendale handed him the receipt. Obenreiser's interest in examining it appeared to have been quenched as suddenly and as effectively as the fire itself. He just glanced over the document and said, "'No, I don't understand it. I am sorry to be of no use.' "'I will write to Neuchâtel by to-night's post,' said Vendale, putting away the receipt for the second time. "'We must wait and see what comes of it.' "'By to-night's post,' repeated Obenreiser. Let me see, you will get the answer in eight or nine days' time. I shall be back before then. If I can be of any service as commercial traveller, perhaps you will let me know between this and then. You will send me written instructions? My best thanks. I shall be most anxious for your answer from Neuchâtel. Who knows? It may be a mistake, my dear friend, after all. Courage, courage, courage! He had entered the room with no appearance of being pressed for time. He now snatched up his hat and took his leave with the air of a man who had not another moment to lose. Left by himself, Vendale took a turn thoughtfully in the room. His previous impression of Obenreiser was shaken by what he had heard and seen at the interview which had just taken place. He was disposed for the first time to doubt whether, in this case, he had not been a little hasty and hard in his judgment on another man. Obenreiser's surprise and regret on hearing the news from Neuchâtel bore the plainest marks of being honestly felt, not politely assumed for the occasion. With troubles of his own to encounter, suffering to all appearance from the first insidious attack of a serious illness, he had looked and spoken like a man who really deplored the disaster that had fallen on his friend. Hitherto Vendale had tried vainly to alter the first opinion of Marguerite's guardian, for Marguerite's sake. All the generous instincts in his nature now combined together and shook the evidence which had seemed unanswerable up to this time. Who knows, he thought, I may have read that man's face wrongly, after all. The time passed. The happy evenings with Marguerite came and went. It was again the tenth morning since Vendale had written to the Swiss firm, and again the answer appeared on his desk with the other letters of the day. Dear Sir, my senior partner, Monsieur de Fresnier, has been called away by urgent business to Milan. 
in his absence and with his full concurrence and authority i now write to you again on the subject of the missing five hundred pounds your discovery that the forged receipt is executed upon one of our numbered and printed forms has caused inexpressible surprise and distress to my partner and to myself at the time when your remittance was stolen but three keys were in existence opening the strong-box in which our receipt-forms are invariably kept. My partner had one key, I had the other. The third was in the possession of a gentleman who, at that period, occupied a position of trust in our house. We should as soon have thought of suspecting one of ourselves as of suspecting this person. Suspicion now points to him, nevertheless. I cannot prevail upon myself to inform you who the person is, so long as there is the shadow of a chance that he may come innocently out of the inquiry which must now be instituted. Forgive my silence. The motive of it is good. The form our investigation must now take is simple enough. The handwriting of your receipt must be compared by competent persons whom we have at our disposal, with certain specimens of handwriting in our possession. I cannot send you the specimens for business reasons, which, when you hear them, you are sure to approve. I must beg you to send me the receipt to Neuchâtel, and, in making this request, I must accompany it by a word of necessary warning. If the person at whom suspicion now points really proves to be the person who has committed this forger and theft, I have reason to fear that circumstances may have already put him on his guard. The only evidence against him is the evidence in your hands, and he will move heaven and earth to obtain and destroy it. I strongly urge you not to trust the receipt to the post. Send it to me without loss of time by a private hand, and choose nobody for your messenger but a person long established in your own employment, accustomed to travelling, capable of speaking French, a man of courage, a man of honesty, and, above all things, a man who can be trusted to let no stranger scrape acquaintance with him on the route. Tell no one, absolutely no one, but your messenger, of the turn this matter has now taken. The safe transit of the receipt may depend on your interpreting literally the advice which I give you at the end of this letter. I have only to add that every possible saving of time is now of the last importance. More than one of our receipt forms is missing, and it is impossible to say what new frauds may not be committed if we fail to lay hands on the thief. Your faithful service, Rolland, signing for Defresnia Essi. Who was the suspected man? In Vendale's position it seemed useless to inquire. Who was to be sent to Neuchâtel with the receipt? Men of courage and men of honesty were to be had at Cripple Corner for the asking. But where was the man who was accustomed to foreign travelling, who could speak the French language, and who could be really relied on to let no stranger scrape acquaintance with him on his route? There was but one man at hand, who combined all these requisites in his own person, and that man was Vendale himself. It was a sacrifice to leave his business. It was a greater sacrifice to leave Marguerite. 
but a matter of five hundred pounds was involved in the pending inquiry, and a literal interpretation of Monsieur Roland's advice was insisted on in terms which there was no trifling with. The more Vendale thought of it, the more plainly the necessity faced him, and said, Go! As he locked up the letter with the receipt, the association of ideas reminded him of Obenreiser. A guess at the identity of the suspected man looked more possible now. Obenreiser might know. The thought had barely passed through his mind when the door opened and Obenreiser entered the room. "'They told me at Soho Square you were expected back last night,' said Vendale, greeting him. "'Have you done well in the country?' Are you better? A thousand thanks. Obenreiser had done admirably well. Obenreiser was infinitely better. And now what news? Any letter from Neuchatel? A very strange letter, answered Vendale. The matter has taken a new turn, and the letter insists, without accepting anybody, on my keeping our next proceedings a profound secret. "'Without accepting anybody?' repeated Obenreiser. As he said the words, he walked away again thoughtfully to the window at the other end of the room, looked out for a moment, and suddenly came back to Vendale. "'Surely they must have forgotten,' he resumed, "'or they would have accepted me.' "'It is Monsieur Rolland who writes,' said Vendale, "'and, as you say, he must certainly have forgotten.' That view of the matter quite escaped me. I was just wishing I had you to consult when you came into the room, and here I am tied by a formal prohibition which cannot possibly have been intended to include you. How very annoying! Obenreiser's filmy eyes fixed on Vendale attentively. Perhaps it is more than annoying, he said. I came this morning not only to hear the news, but to offer myself as messenger, negotiator, what you will. Would you believe it? I have letters which oblige me to go to Switzerland immediately. Messages, documents, anything I could have taken them all to Defresnia and Roland for you. You are the very man I wanted, returned Vendale. I had decided most unwillingly on going to Neuchatel myself not five minutes since, because I could find no one here capable of taking my place. Let me look at the letter again. He opened the strong room to get at the letter. Obenreiser, at first glancing round him to make sure that they were alone, followed a step or two and waited, measuring Vendale with his eye. Vendale was the tallest man, and unmistakably the strongest man also of the two. Obenreiser turned away and warmed himself at the fire. Meanwhile, Vendale read the last paragraph in the letter for the third time. There was the plain warning. There was the closing sentence, which insisted on a literal interpretation of it. The hand which was leading Vendale in the dark led him on that condition only. A large sum was at stake. A terrible suspicion remained to be verified. If he acted on his own responsibility, and if anything happened to defeat the object in view, who would be blamed? As a man of business, Vendale had but one course to follow. He locked the letter up again. 
"'It is most annoying,' he said to Obenreizer. "'It is a piece of forgetfulness on Monsieur Rolland's part "'which puts me to serious inconvenience, "'and places me in an absurdly false position to you. "'What am I to do? "'I am acting in a very serious matter "'and acting entirely in the dark. "'I have no choice but to be guided, "'not by the spirit, but by the letter of my instructions. "'You understand me, I am sure.' You know, if I had not been fettered in this way, how gladly I should have accepted your services. "'Say no more,' returned Obenreizer. "'In your place I should have done the same. My good friend, I take no offence. I thank you for your compliment. We shall be travelling companions at any rate,' added Obenreizer. "'You go as I go at once?' "'At once. I must speak to Marguerite first, of course.' "'Surely, surely, speak to her this evening. "'Come and pick me up on the way to the station. "'We go together by the mail-train to-night?' "'By the mail-train to-night.' "'It was later than Vendel had anticipated "'when he drove up to the house in Soho Square. "'Business difficulties, occasioned by his sudden departure, "'had presented themselves by dozens.' A cruelly large share of the time which he had hoped to devote to Marguerite had been claimed by duties at his office which it was impossible to neglect. To his surprise and delight she was alone in the drawing-room when he entered it. "'We have only a few minutes, George,' she said. "'But Madame Dor has been good to me, and we can have those few minutes alone.' She threw her arms round his neck and whispered eagerly, "'Have you done anything to offend Mr. Obenreizer?' "'I?' exclaimed Vendale in amazement. "'Hush!' she said. "'I want to whisper it. "'You know the little photograph I have of you? "'This afternoon it happened to be on the chimney-piece. "'He took it up and looked at it, "'and I saw his face in the glass. "'I know you have offended him.' He is merciless, he is revengeful, he is as secret as the grave. Don't go with him, George, don't go with him. My own love, returned Vendale, you are letting your fancy frighten you. Obenreizer and I were never better friends than we are at the moment. Before a word more could be said, the sudden movement of some ponderous body shook the floor of the next room. The shock was followed by the appearance of Madame Dor. "'Obenreizer!' exclaimed this excellent person in a whisper, and plumped down instantly in her regular place by the stove. Obenreizer came in with a courier's bag strapped over his shoulder. "'Are you ready?' he asked, addressing Vendale. "'Can I take anything for you? You have no travelling bag.' "'I have got one. Here is the compartment for papers, open at your service.' "'Thank you,' said Vendale. "'I have only one paper of importance with me, and that paper I am bound to take charge of myself. Here it is,' he added, touching the breast-pocket of his coat, "'and here it must remain till we get to Neuchâtel.' As he said these words, Marguerite's hand caught his and pressed it significantly. She was looking towards Obenreizer. Before Vendale could look in his turn, Obenreizer had wheeled round and was taking leave of Madame Dor. "'Adieu, my charming niece,' he said, turning to Marguerite next. 
En route, my friend, for Neuchâtel. He tapped Vendale lightly over the breast pocket of his coat and led the way to the door. Vendale's last look was for Marguerite. Marguerite's last words to him were, Don't go! End of Act Two, Scene Two, and End of Act Two. Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Act Three, Scene One of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens. Act Three, Scene One. In the Valley. It was about the middle of the month of February when Vendale and Obenreizer set forth on their expedition. The winter being a hard one, the time was bad for travellers. So bad was it that these two travellers, coming to Strasbourg, found its great inns almost empty. And even the few people they did encounter in that city, who had started from England or from Paris, on business journeys towards the interior of Switzerland, were turning back. Many of the railroads in Switzerland that tourists pass easily enough now were almost or quite impracticable then. Some were not begun, more were not completed. On such as were open there were still large gaps of old road where communication in the winter season was often stopped. On others there were weak points where the new work was not safe, either under conditions of severe frost or of rapid thaw. The running of trains on this last class was not to be counted on in the worst time of the year, was contingent upon weather, or was wholly abandoned through the months considered the most dangerous. At Strasbourg there were more travellers' stories afloat respecting the difficulties of the way further on than there were travellers to relate them. Most of these tales were as wild as usual, but the more modestly marvellous did derive some colour from the circumstance that people were indisputably turning back. However, as the road to Baal was open, Vendale's resolution to push on was in no wise disturbed. Obenreiser's resolution was necessarily Vendale's, seeing that he stood at bay thus desperately. He must be ruined, or he must destroy the evidence that Vendale carried about him, even if he destroyed Vendale with it. The state of mind of each of these two fellow-travellers towards each other was this. Obenreiser, encircled by impending ruin through Vendale's quickness of action, and seeing the circle narrowed every hour by Vendale's energy, hated him with the animosity of a fierce, cunning, lower animal. He had always had instinctive movements in his breast against him, perhaps because of that old sore of gentleman and a peasant, perhaps because of the openness of his nature, perhaps because of his better looks, 
perhaps because of his success with Marguerite. Perhaps on all these grounds, the two last not the least. And now he saw in him besides the hunter who was tracking him down. Vendale, on the other hand, always contending generously against his first vague mistrust, now felt bound to contend against it more than ever, reminding himself, He is Marguerite's guardian. We are on perfectly friendly terms. He is my companion of his own proposal, and can have no interested motive in sharing this undesirable journey. To which please, in behalf of Obenreiser, chance added one consideration more when they came to Bâle after a journey of more than twice the average duration. They had had a late dinner, and were alone in an inn-room there, overhanging the Rhine, at that place rapid and deep, swollen and loud. Vendale lounged upon a couch, and Obenreiser walked to and fro, now stopping at the window, looking at the crooked reflection of the town-lights in the dark water, and peradventure thinking, "'If I could fling him into it!' now resuming his walk with his eyes upon the floor. "'Where shall I rob him if I can? Where shall I murder him if I must?' So, as he paced the room, ran the river, ran the river, ran the river. The burden seemed to him at last to be growing so plain that he stopped, thinking it as well to suggest another burden to his companion. "'The Rhine sounds to-night,' he said with a smile, "'like the old waterfall at home.' "'That waterfall which my mother showed to travellers, I told you of it once. "'The sound of it change with the weather, as does the sound of all falling waters and flowing waters. "'When I was pupil of the watchmaker, I remembered it as sometimes saying to me for whole days, "'Who are you, my little wretch? Who are you, my little wretch?' "'I remembered it as saying other times when its sound was hollow,' and storm was coming up the pass. Boom, boom, boom! Beat him, beat him, beat him! Like my mother enraged, if she was my mother. If she was, said Vendale, gradually changing his attitude to a sitting one. If she was? Why do you say, if? What do I know? replied the other negligently, throwing up his hands and letting them fall as they would. What would you have? I am so obscurely born that how can I say? I was very young, and all the rest of the family were men and women, and my so-called parents were old. Anything is possible in a case like that. Did you ever doubt? I told you once. I doubt the marriage of those two, he replied, throwing up his hands again, as if he was throwing the unprofitable subject away. But here I am in creation. I come of no fine family. What does it matter? At least you are Swiss, said Vendale, after following him with his eyes to and fro. How do I know? he retorted abruptly, and stopping to look back over his shoulder. I say to you, at least you are English. How do you know? By what I have been told from infancy. Ah, I know of myself that way. And? added Vendale, pursuing the thought that he could not drive back, by my earliest recollections. I also. I know of myself that way, if that way satisfies. 
does it not satisfy you? It must. There is nothing like it must in this little world. It must. Two short words, those, but stronger than long proof or reasoning. You and poor Wilding were born in the same year. You were nearly of an age, said Vendale again, thoughtfully looking after him as he resumed his pacing up and down. Yes, very nearly. Could Obenreiser be the missing man? In the unknown association of things, was there a subtler meaning than he himself thought, in the theory so often on his lips about the smallness of the world? Had the Swiss letter presenting him followed so close on Mrs. Goldstraw's revelation concerning the infant who had been taken away to Switzerland, because he was that infant grown a man? In a world where so many depths lie unsounded, it might be. The chances, or the laws, call them either, that had wrought out the revival of Vendale's own acquaintance with Obenreiser, and had ripened it into intimacy, and had brought them here together this present winter night, were hardly less curious, while read by such a light, they were seen to cohere towards the furtherance of a continuous and an intelligible purpose. Vendale's awakened thoughts ran high while his eyes musingly followed Obenreiser pacing up and down the room, the river ever running to the tune, "'When shall I rob him?' if I can. When shall I murder him, if I must? The secret of his dead friend was in no hazard from Vendale's lips, but just as his friend had died of its weight, so did he in his lighter succession feel the burden of the trust, and the obligation to follow any cue, however obscure. He rapidly asked himself, would he like this man to be the real Wilding? No argue down his mistrust as he might, he was unwilling to put such a substitute in the place of the late guileless, outspoken, childlike partner. He rapidly asked himself, would he like this man to be rich? No. He had more power than enough over Marguerite as it was, and wealth might invest him with more. Would he like this man to be Marguerite's guardian, and yet proved to stand in no degree of relationship towards her, however disconnected and distant. No. But these were not considerations to come between him and fidelity to the dead. Let him see to it that they had passed him with no other notice than the knowledge that they had passed him, and left him bent on the discharge of a solemn duty. And he did see to it so soon that he followed his companion with ungrudging eyes, while he still paced the room. That companion, whom he supposed to be moodily reflecting on his own birth, and not on another man's, least of all what man's, violent death. The road in advance from Baal to Neuchâtel was better than had been represented. The latest weather had done it good. Drivers, both of horses and mules, had come in that evening after dark, and had reported nothing more difficult to be overcome than trials of patience, harness, wheels, axles, and whipcord. A bargain was soon struck for a carriage and horses to take them on in the morning, and to start before daylight. 
"'Do you lock your door at night when travelling? asked Obenreizer, standing warming his hands by the wood-fire in Vendale's chamber before going into his own. "'Not I. I sleep too soundly.' "'You are so sound a sleeper,' he retorted, with an admiring look. "'What a blessing!' "'Anything but a blessing to the rest of the house,' rejoined Vendale, "'if I had to be knocked up in the morning from the outside of my bedroom door.' "'I, too,' said Obenreizer, "'leave open my room. "'But let me advise you as a Swiss who knows always when you travel in my country. "'Put your papers, and of course your money, under your pillow, always in the same place.' "'You are not complimentary to your own countrymen,' laughed Vendale. "'My countrymen?' said Obenreizer, with that light touch of his friend's elbows by way of good-night and benediction. "'I suppose I like the majority of men, and the majority of men will take what they can. Adieu. At four in the morning. Adieu. At four. Left to himself, Vendale raked the logs together, sprinkled over them the white wood-ashes lying on the hearth, and sat down to compose his thoughts. But they still ran high on their latest theme, and the running of the river tended to agitate them rather than quiet them. As he sat thinking, what little disposition he had had to sleep departed. He felt it hopeless to lie down yet, and sat dressed by the fire. Marguerite, Wilding, Obenreizer, the business he was then upon, and a thousand hopes and doubts that had nothing to do with it, occupied his mind at once. Everything seemed to have power over him but slumber. The departed disposition to sleep kept far away. He had sat for a long time thinking on the hearth, when his candle burned down and its light went out. It was of little moment. There was light enough in the fire. He changed his attitude, and leaning his arm on the chair-back, and his chin upon that hand, sat thinking still. But he sat between the fire and the bed, and as the fire flickered in the play of air from the fast-flowing river, his enlarged shadow fluttered on the white wall by the bedside. His attitude gave it an air, half of mourning and half of bending over the bed imploring. His eyes were observant of it, when he became troubled by the disagreeable fancy that it was like Wilding's shadow, and not his own. A slight change of place would cause it to disappear. He made the change, and the apparition of his disturbed fancy vanished. He now sat in the shade of a little nook beside the fire, and the door of the room was before him. It had a long, cumbrous iron latch. He saw the latch slowly and softly rise. The door opened a very little, and came to again, as though only the air had moved it. But he saw that the latch was out of the hasp. The door opened again very slowly, until it opened wide enough to admit someone. It afterwards remained still for a while, as though cautiously held open on the other side. The figure of a man then entered, with its face turned towards the bed, and stood quiet just inside the door, until, it said, 
in a low half-whisper, and at the same time taking one step forward, Vendale? What now? he answered, springing from his seat. Who is it? It was Obenreizer, and he uttered a cry of surprise as Vendale came upon him from that unexpected direction. Not in bed, he said, catching him by both shoulders with an instinctive tendency to a struggle. Then something is wrong. What do you mean? said Vendale, releasing himself. First tell me, are you not ill? Ill? No. I had a bad dream about you. How is it that I see you up and dressed? My good fellow, I may as well ask how it is that I see you up and dressed. I have told you why. I had a bad dream about you. I tried to rest afterwards, but it was impossible. I could not make up my mind to stay where I was without knowing you were safe. And yet I could not make up my mind to come in here. I have been minutes hesitating at the door. It is so easy to laugh at a dream that you have not dreamed. Where is your candle? Burnt out. I have a whole one in my room. Shall I fetch it? Do so. His room was very near, and he was absent for but a few seconds. Coming back with the candle in his hand, he kneeled down on the hearth and lighted it. As he blew with his breath a charred billet into flame for the purpose, Vendale, looking down at him, saw that his lips were white, and not easy of control. "'Yes,' said Obenreizer, setting the lighted candle on the table, "'it was a bad dream. Only look at me!' His feet were bare, his red flannel shirt was thrown back at the throat, and its sleeves were rolled above the elbows. His only other garment, a pair of under-pantaloons or drawers, reaching to the ankles, fitted him close and tight. A certain lithe and savage appearance was on his figure, and his eyes were very bright. "'If there had been a wrestle with a robber, as I dreamed,' said Obenreizer, "'you'll see, I was stripped for it.' "'And armed, too,' said Vendale, glancing at his girdle. "'A traveller's dagger that I always carry on the road,' he answered carelessly, half drawing it from its sheath with his left hand, and putting it back again. "'Do you carry no such thing?' "'Nothing of the kind.' "'No pistols?' said Obenreizer, glancing at the table, and from it to the untouched pillow. "'Nothing of the sort.' "'You Englishmen are so confident. You wish to sleep?' I have wished to sleep this long time, but I can't do it. I neither, after the bad dream. My fire has gone the way of your candle. May I come and sit by yours? Two o'clock. It will soon be four, that it is not worth the trouble to go to bed again. I shall not take the trouble to go to bed at all now, said Vendale. Sit here and keep me company and welcome. Going back to his room to arrange his dress, Obenreizer soon returned in a loose cloak and slippers, and they sat down on opposite sides of the hearth. In the interval Vendale had replenished the fire from the wood-basket in his room, and Obenreizer had put upon the table a flask and cup from his. "'Common cabaret brandy, I'm afraid,' he said, pouring out. "'Bought upon the road, and not like yours from Cripple Corner.' 
but yours is exhausted so much the worse a cold night a cold time of night a cold country and a cold house this may be better than nothing try it vendale took the cup and did so how did you find it it has a coarse after flavour said vendale giving back the cup with a slight shudder and i don't like it you are right said obenreizer tasting and smacking his lips it has a coarse after flavour and i don't like it Boh! it burns though he had flung what remained in the cup upon the fire each of them leaned an elbow on the table reclined his head upon his hand and sat looking at the flaring logs obenreizer remained watchful and still but vendale after certain nervous twitches and starts in one of which he rose to his feet and looked wildly about him fell into the strangest confusion of dreams he carried his papers in a leather case or pocket-book in an inner breast-pocket of his buttoned travelling-coat and whatever he dreamed of in the lethargy that got possession of him something importunate in those papers called him out of that dream though he could not wake from it he was berated on the steppes of russia some shadowy person gave that name to the place with marguerite and yet the sensation of a hand at his breast softly feeling the outline of the pocket-book as he lay asleep before the fire was present to him he was shipwrecked in an open boat at sea and having lost his clothes had no other covering than an old sail and yet a creeping hand tracing outside all of the other pockets of the dress he actually wore for papers and finding none answer its touch warned him to rouse himself he was in the ancient vault at cripple corner to which was transferred the very bed substantial and present in that very room at baal and wilding not dead as he had supposed and yet he did not wonder much shook him and whispered look at that man don't you see he has risen and is turning the pillow why should he turn the pillow if not to seek those papers that are in your breast awake and yet he slept and wandered off into other dreams watchful and still with his elbow on the table and his head upon that hand his companion at length said vendale we are called past four then opening his eyes he saw turned sideways on him the filmy face of obenreizer you have been in a heavy sleep he said the fatigue of constant travelling and the cold i am broad awake now cried vendale springing up but with an unsteady footing haven't you slept at all i may have dozed but i seem to have been patiently looking at the fire whether or no we must wash and breakfast and turn out past four vendale past four it was said in a tone to rouse him for already he was half asleep again in his preparation for the day too and at his breakfast he was often virtually asleep while in mechanical action it was not until the cold dark day was closing in that he had any distincter impressions of the ride than jingling bells bitter weather slipping horses frowning hillsides bleak woods 
and a stoppage at some wayside house of entertainment, where they had passed through a cow-house to reach the traveller's room above. He had been conscious of little more, except of Obenreizer sitting thoughtful at his side all day, and eyeing him much. But when he shook off his stupor, Obenreizer was not at his side. The carriage was stopping to bait at another wayside house, and a line of long narrow carts laden with casks of wine, and drawn by horses with a quantity of blue collar and headgear, were baiting too. These came from the direction in which the travellers were going, and Obenreizer, not thoughtful now but cheerful and alert, was talking with the foremost driver. As Vendale stretched his limbs, circulated his blood, and cleared off the lees of his lethargy, with a sharp run to and fro in the bracing air, the line of carts moved on, the drivers all saluting Obenreizer as they passed him. "'Whose are those?' asked Vendale. "'Those are our carriers, the Fresnier and Companies,' replied Obenreizer. "'Those are our casks of wine.' He was singing to himself and lighting a guitar. "'I have been dreadful dull company to-day,' said Vendale. "'I don't know what has been the matter with me.' "'You had no sleep last night, and a kind of brain congestion frequently comes at first of such cold,' said Obenreizer. "'I have seen it often. After all, we shall have our journey for nothing, it seems.' "'How for nothing?' The house is at Milan. You know we are a wine-house at Neuchâtel, and a silk-house at Milan. Well, silk happening to press of a sudden, more than wine, the Fresnier was summoned to Milan. Roland, the other partner, has been taken ill since his departure, and the doctors will allow him to see no one. A letter awaits you at Neuchâtel to tell you so. I have it from our chief carrier, whom you saw me talking with. He was surprised to see me, and said he had that word for you if he met you. What do you do? Go back? Go on, said Vendale. On? Yes, across the Alps, and down to Milan. Obenreizer stopped in his smoking to look at Vendale, and then smoked heavily, looked up the road, looked down the road, looked down at the stones in the road at his feet. "'I have a very serious matter in charge,' said Vendale. "'More of these missing forms may be turned to as bad account or worse. I am urged to lose no time in helping the house to take the thief, and nothing shall turn me back.' "'No!' cried Obenreizer, taking out his cigar to smile, and giving his hand to his fellow-traveller. "'Then nothing shall turn me back. "'Ho, driver, dispatch, quick there! "'Let us push on!' "'They travelled through the night. "'There had been snow, and there was a partial thaw, "'and they mostly travelled at a foot-pace, "'and always with many stoppages "'to breathe the splashed and floundering horses. "'After an hour's broad daylight, "'they drew rein at the inn-door at Neuchâtel.' having been some eight-and-twenty hours in conquering some eighty English miles. When they had hurriedly refreshed and changed, they went together to the house of business of de Fresnier and Company. 
There they found the letter which the wine-carrier had described, enclosing the tests and comparisons of handwriting essential to the discovery of the forger. Vendale's determination to press forward without resting being already taken, the only question to delay them was, by what pass could they cross the Alps? Respecting the state of the two passes of the St. Gotthard and the Simplon, the guides and mule-drivers differed greatly, and both passes were still far enough off to prevent the travellers from having the benefit of any recent experience of either. Besides which, they well knew that a fall of snow might altogether change the described conditions in a single hour, even if they were correctly stated. But on the whole, the Simplon appearing to be the hopefuler route, Vendale decided to take it. Obenreiser bore little or no part in the discussion, and scarcely spoke. To Geneva, to Lucerne, along the level margin of the lake to Vivet, so into the winding valley between the spurs of the mountains, and into the valley of the Rhone. The sound of the carriage-wheels as they rattled on through the day, through the night, became as the wheels of a great clock recording the hours. No change of weather varied the journey, after it had hardened into a sullen frost. In a sombre yellow sky they saw the alpine ranges, and they saw enough of snow on nearer and much lower hilltops and hillsides to sully, by contrast, the purity of lake, torrent, and waterfall, and make the villages look discoloured and dirty. But no snow fell, nor was there any snow-drift on the road. The stalking along the valley, of more or less of white mist, changing on their hair and dress into icicles, was the only variety between them and the gloomy sky. And still by day, and still by night, the wheels! And still they rolled in the hearing of one of them to the burden, altered from the burden of the Rhine. The time is gone for robbing him alive, and I must murder him! They came at length to the poor little town of Brieg, at the foot of the Simplon. They came there after dark, but yet could see how dwarfed men's works and men became with the immense mountain towering over them. Here they must lie for the night, and here was warmth of fire and lamp and dinner and wine and after-conference resounding with guides and drivers. No human creature had come across the pass for four days. The snow above the snow-line was too soft for wheeled carriage, and not hard enough for sledge. There was snow in the sky. There had been snow in the sky for days past, and the marvel was that it had not fallen, and the certainty was that it must fall. No vehicle could cross. The journey might be tried on mules, or it might be tried on foot, but the best guides must be paid danger-price in either case, and that, too, whether they succeeded in taking the two travellers across, or turned for safety and brought them back. In this discussion Obenreiser bore no part whatever. He sat silently smoking by the fire until the room was cleared, and Vendale referred to him. "'Bah! I am weary with these poor devils and their trade!' he said in reply. Always the same story. It is the story of their trade to-day as it was the story of their trade when I was a ragged boy. 
what do you and i want we want a knapsack each and a mountain staff each we want no guide we should guide him he would not guide us we leave our portmanteaus here and we cross together we have been on the mountains together before now and i am mountain born and i know this pass pass rather high road by heart we will leave these poor devils to pity to trade with others but they must not delay us to make a pretence of earning money which is all they mean vendale glad to be quit of the dispute and to cut the knot active adventurous bent on getting forward and therefore very susceptible to the last hint readily assented within two hours they had purchased what they wanted for the expedition had packed their knapsacks and lay down to sleep at break of day they found half the town collected in the narrow street to see them depart the people talked together in groups the guides and drivers whispered apart and looked up at the sky no one wished them a good journey as they began the ascent a gleam of sun shone from the otherwise unaltered sky and for a moment turned the tin spires of the town to silver a good omen said vendale though it died out while he spoke perhaps our example will open the pass on this side no we shall not be followed returned obenreizer looking up at the sky and back at the valley we shall be alone up yonder end of act 3 scene 1 recording by alan chant of tunbridge kent england www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Act Three, Scene Two of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens. Act Three, Scene Two. On the mountain. The road was fair enough for stout walkers, and the air grew lighter and easier to breathe as the two ascended. But the settled gloom remained as it had remained for days back. Nature seemed to have come to a pause. The sense of hearing, no less than the sense of sight, was troubled by having to wait so long for the change, whatever it might be, that impended. The silence was as palpable and heavy as the lowering clouds, or rather cloud, for there seemed to be but one in all the sky, and that one covering the whole of it. Although the light was thus dismally shrouded, the prospect was not obscured. Down in the valley of the Rhone behind them, the stream could be traced through all its many windings, oppressively sombre and solemn, in its one leaden hue a colourless waste far and high above them glaciers and suspended avalanches overhung the spots where they must pass by and by 
deep and dark below them on their right were awful precipice and roaring torrent tremendous mountains arose in every vista the gigantic landscape uncheered by a touch of changing light or a solitary ray of sun was yet terribly distinct in its ferocity the hearts of two lonely men might shrink a little if they had to win their way for miles and hours among a legion of silent and motionless men mere men like themselves all looking at them with fixed and frowning front but how much more when the legion is of nature's mightiest works and the frown may turn to fury in an instant as they ascended the road became gradually more rugged and difficult but the spirits of vendale rose as they mounted higher leaving so much more of the road behind them conquered obenreizer spoke little and held on with a determined purpose both in respect of agility and endurance were well qualified for the expedition whatever the born mountaineer read in the weather tokens that was illegible to the other he kept to himself shall we get across to-day asked vendale no replied the other you'll see how much deeper the snow lies here than it lay half a league lower the higher we mount the deeper the snow will lie walking is half wading even now and the days are so short if we get as high as the fifth refuge and lie to-night at the hospice we shall do well is there no danger of the weather rising in the night asked vendale anxiously and snowing us up there is danger enough about us said obenreizer with a cautious glance onward and upward to render silence our best policy you have heard of the bridge of the ganther i have crossed it once in the summer yes in the travelling season yes but it is another thing at this season with a sneer as though he were out of temper this is not a time of year or a state of things on an alpine pass that you gentlemen holiday travellers know much about you are my guide said vendale good-humouredly i trust to you i am your guide said obenreizer and i will guide you to your journey's end there is the bridge before us they had made a turn into a desolate and dismal ravine where the snow lay deep below them deep above them deep on every side while speaking obenreizer stood pointing at the bridge and observing vendale's face with a very singular expression on his own if i as guide had sent you over there in advance and encouraged you to give a shout or two you might have brought down upon yourself tons and tons and tons of snow that would not only have struck you dead but buried you deep at a blow no doubt said vendale no doubt but that is not what i have to do as guide so pass silently or going as we go our indiscretion might else crush and bury me let us go on there was a great accumulation of snow on the bridge and such enormous accumulations of snow overhung them from protecting masses of rocks 
that they might have been making their way through a stormy sky of white clouds. Using his staff skilfully, sounding as he went, and looking upward with bent shoulders, as it were to resist the mere idea of a fall from above, Obenreizer softly led. Vendale closely followed. They were yet in the midst of their dangerous way when there came a mighty rush, followed by a sound as of thunder. Obenreizer clapped his hand on Vendale's mouth, and pointed to the track behind them. Its aspect had been wholly changed in a moment. An avalanche had swept over it, and plunged into the torrent at the bottom of the gulf below. Their appearance at the solitary inn not far beyond the terrible bridge elicited many expressions of astonishment from the people shut up in the house. "'We stay but to rest,' said Obenreizer, shaking the snow from his dress at the fire. "'This gentleman has very pressing occasion to get across. Tell them, Vendale.' "'Assuredly, I have very pressing occasion. I must cross.' "'You hear, all of you. My friend has very pressing occasion to get across, and we want no advice and no help. I am as good a guide, my fellow-countrymen, as any of you. Now give us to eat and drink.' In exactly the same way, and in nearly the same words, when it was coming on dark and they had struggled through the greatly increased difficulties of the road, and had at last reached their destination for the night, Obenreizer said to the astonished people at the hospice, gathering about them at the fire, while they were yet in the act of getting their wet clothes off, and shaking the snow from their clothes, "'It is well to understand one another, friends all. This gentleman—' "'Has,' said Vendale, readily taking him up with a smile, "'very pressing occasion to get across. Must cross. You hear?' He has very pressing occasion to get across. Must cross. We want no advice and no help. I am mountain-born and act as guide. Do not worry us by talking about it, but let us have supper and wine and bed. All through the intense cold of the night, the same awful stillness. Again at sunrise, no sunny tinge to gild or redden the snow the same impenetrable waste of deathly white, the same immovable air, the same monotonous gloom in the sky. "'Travellers!' A friendly voice called to them from the door, after they were afoot, knapsack on back and staff in hand, as yesterday. "'Recollect! There are five places of shelter, near together, on the dangerous road before you, and there is the wooden cross—' and there is the next hospice. Do not stray from the track. If the torment comes on, take shelter instantly. The trade of these poor devils, said Obenreizer to his friend, with a contemptuous backward wave of his hand towards the voice. How they stick to their trade! You Englishmen say we Swiss are mercenary. Truly it does look like it. They had divided between the two knapsacks such refreshments as they had been able to obtain that morning, and as they deemed it prudent to take. Obenreizer carried the wine as his share of the burden, Vendale the bread and meat and cheese, 
and the flask of brandy. They had for some time laboured upward and onward through the snow, which was now above their knees in the track, and of unknown depth elsewhere, and they were still labouring upward and onward through the most frightful part of that tremendous desolation when snow began to fall. At first but a few flakes descended slowly and steadily. After a little while the fall grew much denser, and suddenly it began without apparent cause to whirl itself into spiral shapes. Instantly ensuing upon this last change, an icy blast came roaring at them, and every sound and force imprisoned until now was let loose. One of the dismal galleries through which the road is carried at that perilous point, a cave eked out by arches of great strength, was near at hand. They struggled into it, and the storm raged wildly. The noise of the wind, the noise of the water, the thundering down of displaced masses of rock and snow, the awful voices with which not only that gorge, but every gorge in the whole mountainous range, seemed to be suddenly endowed, the darkness as of night, the violent revolving of the snow which beat and broke it into spray, and blinded them, the madness of everything around insatiate for destruction, the rapid substitution of furious violence for unnatural calm, and hosts of appalling sounds for silence, these were things on the edge of a deep abyss to chill the blood, though the fierce wind, made actually solid by ice and snow, had failed to chill it. Obenreiser, walking to and fro in the gallery without ceasing, signed to Vendale to help him unbuckle his knapsack. They could see each other, but they could not have heard each other speak. Vendale complying, Obenreiser produced his bottle of wine and poured some out, motioning Vendale to take that for warmth's sake, and not brandy. Vendale again complying, Obenreiser seemed to drink after him, and the two walked backwards and forwards side by side, both well knowing that to rest or sleep would be to die. The snow came driving heavily into the gallery by the upper end at which they would pass out of it, if they ever passed out, for greater dangers lay on the road behind them than before. The snow soon began to choke the arch. An hour more, and it lay so high as to block out half the returning daylight. But it froze hard now as it fell, and could be clambered through or over. The violence of the mountain storm was gradually yielding to steady snowfall. The wind still raged at intervals, but not incessantly, and when it paused the snow fell in heavy flakes. They might have been two hours in their frightful prison, when Obenreiser, now crunching into the mound, now creeping over it with his head bowed down and his body touching the top of the arch, made his way out. Vendale followed close upon him, but followed without clear motive or calculation, for the lethargy of Baal was creeping over him again, and mastering his senses. How far he had followed out of the gallery, or with what obstacles he had since contended, he knew not. He became roused to the knowledge that Obenreiser had set upon him, and that they were struggling desperately in the snow. He became roused to the remembrance of what his assailant carried in a girdle. 
He felt for it, drew it, struck at him, struggled again, struck at him again, cast him off, and stood face to face with him. "'I promise to guide you to your journey's end,' said Obenreizer, "'and I have kept my promise. The journey of your life ends here. Nothing can prolong it. You are sleeping as you stand.' "'You are a villain. What have you done to me?' "'You are a fool. I have drugged you. You are doubly a fool, for I drugged you once before upon the journey, to try you. You are trebly a fool, for I am the thief and forger, and in a few moments I shall take those proofs against the thief and forger from your insensible body.' The entrapped man tried to throw off the lethargy, but its fatal hold upon him was so sure that, even while he heard those words, he stupidly wondered which of them had been wounded, and whose blood it was that he saw sprinkled on the snow. "'What have I done to you?' he asked, heavily and thickly. "'That you should be so base a murderer!' done to me you would have destroyed me but that you have come to your journey's end your cursed activity interposed between me and the time i had counted on in which i might have replaced the money done to me you have come in my way not once not twice but again and again and again did i try to shake you off in the beginning or no you were not to be shaken off Therefore you die. Here. Vendale tried to think coherently, tried to speak coherently, tried to pick up the iron-shod staff he had let fall, failing to touch it, tried to stagger on without its aid. All in vain. All in vain. He stumbled and fell heavily forward on the brink of the deep chasm. Stupefied, dozing, Unable to stand upon his feet, a veil before his eyes, his sense of hearing deadened, he made such a vigorous rally that, supporting himself on his hands, he saw his enemy standing calmly over him, and heard him speak. "'You call me murderer?' said Obenreizer, with a grim laugh. "'The name matters very little, but at least I have set my life against yours, for I am surrounded by dangers.' and may never make my way out of this place. The torment is rising again. The snow is on the wind. I must have the papers now. Every moment has my life in it. Stop! cried Vendale, in a terrible voice, staggering up with a last flash of fire breaking out of him, and clutching the thievish hands at his breast in both of his. Stop! Stand away from me! God bless my Marguerite! Happily she will never know how I died! Stand off from me, and let me look at your murderous face! Let it remind me of something left to say! The sight of him fighting so hard for his senses and the doubt whether he might not for the instant be possessed by the strength of a dozen men, 
kept his opponent still. Wildly glaring at him, Vendale faltered out the broken words. "'It shall not be the trust of the dead, betrayed by me, reputed parents, misinherited fortune, see to it.' as his head dropped on his breast, and he stumbled on the brink of the chasm as before, the thievish hands went once more quick and busy to his breast. He made a convulsive attempt to cry, No! desperately rolled himself over into the gulf, and sank away from his enemy's touch, like a phantom in a dreadful dream. The mountain storm raged again, and passed away. The awful mountain voices died away. The moon rose, and the soft and silent snow fell. Two men and two large dogs came out at the door of the hospice. The men looked carefully around them, and up at the sky. The dogs rolled in the snow and took it into their mouths and cast it up with their paws. One of the men said to the other, We may venture now. We may find them in one of the five refuges. Each fastened on his back a basket. Each took in his hand a strong spiked pole. Each girded under his arms a looped end of a stout rope, so that they were tied together. Suddenly the dogs desisted in their gambols in the snow, stood looking down the ascent, put their noses up, put their noses down, became greatly excited, and broke into a deep, loud bay together. The two men looked in the faces of the two dogs. The two dogs looked, with at least equal intelligence, in the faces of the two men. Asikur, then! Help! To the rescue! cried the two men. The two dogs, with a glad, deep, generous bark, bounded away. "'To more mad ones,' said the men, stricken motionless and looking away in the moonlight. "'Is it possible in such weather? And one of them is a woman!' Each of the dogs had the corner of a woman's dress in its mouth, and drew her along. She fondled their heads as she came up, and she came up through the snow with an accustomed tread. Not so the large man with her, who was spent and winded. "'Dear guides, dear friends of travellers, I am of your country. We seek two gentlemen crossing the pass, who should have reached the hospice this evening.' "'They have reached it, mademoiselle.' "'Oh, thank heaven, oh, thank heaven! But unhappily they have gone on again. We are setting forth to seek them even now.' We had to wait until the torment passed. It has been fearful up here. Dear guides, dear friends of travellers, let me go with you. Let me go with you for the love of God. One of those gentlemen is to be my husband. I love him oh so dearly, oh so dearly. You see, I am not faint. You see, I am not tired. I am born a peasant girl. 
I will show you that I know well how to fasten myself to your ropes. I will do it with my own hands. I will swear to be brave and good, but let me go with you, let me go with you. If any mischance should have befallen him, my love would find him, when nothing else could. On my knees, dear friends of travellers, by the love your dear mothers had for your fathers. The good, rough fellows were moved. After all, they murmured to one another, she speaks but the truth. She knows the way of the mountains. See how marvellously she has come here. But as to monsieur there, mademoiselle? Dear Mr. Joey, said Marguerite, addressing him in his own tongue, you will remain at the house and wait for me, will you not? If I'd a knowed which of you two recommended it, growled Joey Ladle, eyeing the two men with great indignation. I'd fight you for sixpence, and give you half a crown towards your expenses. No, miss, I'll stick by you as long as there's any sticking left in me, and I'll die for you when I can't do better. The state of the moon rendering it highly important that no time should be lost, and the dog showing signs of great uneasiness. The two men quickly took their resolution. The rope that yoked them together was exchanged for a longer one. The party were secured, Marguerite second, and the cellarman last, and they set out for the refuges. The actual distance of those places was nothing, the whole five and the next hospice to boot being within two miles, but the ghastly way was whited out and sheeted over. They made no miss in reaching the gallery where the two had taken shelter. The second storm of wind and snow had so wildly swept over it since that their tracks were gone. But the dogs went to and fro with their noses down, and were confident. The party stopping, however, at the further arch, where the second storm had been especially furious, and where the drift was deep, the dogs became troubled, and went about and about in quest of a lost purpose. The great abyss being known to lie on the right, they wandered too much to the left, and had to regain the way with infinite labour through a deep field of snow. The leader of the line had stopped it, and was taking note of the landmarks, when one of the dogs fell to tearing up the snow a little before them. Advancing and stooping to look at it, thinking that some one might be overwhelmed there, they saw that it was stained, and that the stain was red. The other dog was now seen to look over the brink of the gulf, with his forelegs straightened out lest he should fall into it, and to tremble in every limb. Then the dog who had found the stained snow joined him, and then they ran to and fro, distressed and whining. Finally they both stopped on the brink together, and setting up their heads, howled dolefully. "'There is someone lying below,' said Marguerite. "'I think so,' said the foremost man. "'Stand well inward, you last two, and let us look over.' The last man kindled two torches from his basket, and handed them forward. 
the leader taking one and marguerite the other they looked down now shading the torches now moving them to right or left now raising them now depressing them as moonlight far below contended with black shadows a piercing cry from marguerite broke a long silence my god on the projecting point where a wall of ice stretches forward over the torrent i see a human form where mamselle where over there on the shelf of ice below the dogs the leader with a sickened aspect drew inward and they were all silent but they were not all inactive for marguerite with swift and skilful fingers had detached both herself and him from the rope in a few seconds show me the baskets these two are the only ropes the only ropes here mamselle but at the hospice if he is alive i know it is my lover he will be dead before you can return dear guides blessed friends of travellers look at me watch my hands if they falter or go wrong make me your prisoner by force if they are steady and go right help me to save him she girded herself with a cord under the breast and arms and formed it into a kind of jacket she drew it into knots she laid its end side by side with the end of the other cord she twisted and twined the two together she knotted them together she set her foot upon the knots she strained them she held them for the two men to strain at she is inspired they said to one another by the almighty's mercy she exclaimed you both know that i am by far the lightest here give me the brandy and the wine and lower me down to him then go for assistance and a stronger rope you see that when it is lowered to me look at this about me now i can make it fast and safe to his body alive or dead i can bring him up or die with him i love him passionately can i say more they turned to her companion but he was lying senseless on the snow lower me down to him she said taking two little kegs they had brought and hanging them about her or i will dash myself to pieces i am a peasant and i know no giddiness or fear and this is nothing to me and i passionately love him lower me down mamselle mamselle he must be dying or dead dying or dead my husband's head shall lie upon my breast or i will dash myself to pieces they yielded overborne with such precautions as their skill and the circumstances admitted they let her slip from the summit guiding herself down the precipitous icy wall with her hand and they lowered down and they lowered down and lowered down until the cry came up enough enough is it really he and is he dead they called down looking over the cry came up he is insensible but his heart beats it beats against mine how does he lie the cry came up upon a ledge of ice it has thawed beneath him and it will thaw beneath me hasten if we die i am content 
one of the two men hurried off with the dogs at such topmost speed as he could make. The other set up the lighted torches in the snow, and applied himself to recovering the Englishman. Much snow-chafing and some brandy got him on his legs, but delirious and quite unconscious where he was. The watch remained upon the brink, and his cry went down continually. "'Courage! They will soon be here! How goes it?' And the cry came up. "'His heart still beats against mine. I warm him in my arms. I have cast off the rope, for the ice melts under us, and the rope would separate me from him. But I am not afraid.' The moon went down behind the mountain-tops, and all the abyss lay in darkness. The cry went down. "'How goes it?' the cry came up. "'We are sinking lower, but his heart still beats against mine.' At length the eager barking of the dogs and a flare of light upon the snow proclaimed that help was coming on. Twenty or thirty men, lamps, torches, litters, ropes, blankets, wood to kindle a great fire, restoratives and stimulants, came in fast. The dogs ran from one man to another, and from this thing to that, and ran to the edge of the abyss, dumbly entreating, Speed! 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 The cry went down, Thanks to God! All is ready! How goes it? The cry came up, We are sinking still, and we are deadly cold. His heart no longer beats against mine. Let no one come down to add to our weight. Lower the rope only. The fire was kindled high. A great glare of torches lighted the sides of the precipice. Lamps were lowered. A strong rope was lowered. She could be seen passing it round him and making it secure. The cry came up in a deathly silence. Raise softly, softly. They could see her diminished figure shrink as he was swung into the air. They gave no shout when some of them laid him on a litter, and others lowered another strong rope. The cry again came up into a deathly silence. Raise, raise softly, softly. But when they caught her at the brink, then they shouted, then they wept, then they gave thanks to heaven, then they kissed her feet and they kissed her dress, then the dogs caressed her, licked her icy hands, and with their honest faces warmed her frozen bosom. She broke from them all and sank over him on his litter, with both her loving hands upon the heart that stood still. End of Act 3, Scene 2 and End of Act 3 Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. 
or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.